Folks, welcome home. Yet another episode of Ghost Tales. Today we have Chris with us, who's in from New York City, and she's um, covering many paranormal factors around the country. And uh, today she's here to talk about Jeffrey Dahmer, the Cream City Cannibal, which we do have, of course, a little experience with. Chris, welcome home. Nice to meet you. Thank you. I love Milwaukee, and I love this place. It's actually an honor. Thank you. Well, clearly you have impeccable taste to be in Milwaukee, first and foremost, in November, but what a beautiful, balmy day, too. It's like 50-some degrees. Very grateful for that weather. So, Chris, what got you started on both the paranormal and then what is your fascination with Jeffrey Dahmer? Well, um, I grew up in a haunted house, Mm -hmm. and I was very different from most kids, naturally, right? I was seeing spirits, and I was seeing auras, and luckily, my aunt who raised me allowed me to embrace it, whereas most parents would tell you that's not real, and they're scared for you, you know? They don't want you to fear what you're seeing, so they kind of make you think it's make-up, like make-believe or made-up. Well, my aunt allowed me to embrace that, and she told me what I was seeing was, in fact, spirits, and we saw the same spirits, so I'm just very grateful for that because it allowed me to embrace who I am as a person in this lifetime. And as an adult, now I do it for a living. I had my own TV show on Travel Channel as well. So we went around the country hunting for ghosts in different residentials. And now I just do it for a living with YouTube, just myself. So I travel the country and I hunt for ghosts and I follow cases like Jeffrey Dahmer and do documentary style videos. And it's so fun, I love it. Well, very nice. I have long maintained that almost all kids have an interaction with that imaginary friend, right? Right. And I think that that imaginary friend really is not just a, a function of their imagination, but it really is a spirit that is yeah. in communicating. So I've got four kids and two different sets of them. And they would come down here Saturday mornings, Sunday mornings when we're setting up or I'm doing something else. And we're here for like 20, 30 minutes, close out the tills. And they would gravitate back to the ladies' room. And at some point I asked, what are you guys doing back there? Mm-hmm. And playing with the little girl. Yeah. So the story is that we have a little girl named Elizabeth, and she was eight years old, climbing for apples in a little stand of apple trees that used to be here in the 1800s. She fell, and she broke her neck. So way before Harry Potter, we've had a little spirit in the restroom. Now, that's the happy part of what we do here. Jeffrey Dahmer. Right. And that's a heavy one. I'm sure you get a lot of questions about Jeffrey Dahmer. People that come in here want to see the bar. I don't even know if they know that you served him his drinks, right? And then when you tell them, are they shocked? Oh yes, absolutely. I was shocked. So gin and tonic, of course, gin makes you sin. And that's my, one of my favorite drinks. Of I course it is, of course it is. Yeah. And uh, oddly enough, most serial killers drink gin and tonic. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Heard about that one. Mm-hmm. I'm not a serial killer. No. Not but, at all. But again, everyone says that, right? Everyone does say that, so mm-hmm. you gotta watch out for that. The sure. same. So I the person next door, and that's one of the reasons that we do these tours is because there are significant lessons to be learned. And one of those lessons is you don't accept drinks from strangers, you don't leave your drink at the bar, you don't go home to have someone take pictures for OnlyFans now or something else, right? Right. But it's, you know, people are just um, not aware of what takes place. And it really is that guy next door. It could be your, your uncle as well, who's the pedophile that you don't really, he's kind of creepy, you're not sure what's going on with him. And then years later, you hear stories about really untoward things taking place. You just never know. People have this little thing about them, this little proclivity, this little bent, that they are less than desirable in so many ways. And mm-hmm. I think that just 
you know, the cover of darkness brings out so much upon everybody. Right. Do you think that there could have been anything spiritual going on with Jeffrey Dahmer? So that there's speculation that he could have possibly been possessed, right? He could have had some sort of like demonic attachment. And I'm curious about your thoughts on that. Because that's a whole other... Well, I, I think that Dahmer was beyond just a sociopath. Maybe not quite the criteria for a psychopath. As far as something else taking place, he certainly has evidence that he had a desire for The Exorcist, I think, especially number, number two and number three, I think, were his big shows. Um, he had built his own little altar as well, and that bodes for something other than the norm. Um, as far as possession goes, I don't know about that, but he certainly had other things taking place in his mind that were beyond the norm. Right. And if you want to suggest to me that there was some other spiritual influence, why not? It's a possibility. Why not? Right. So you believe in spirits, right? You believe in the spiritual side of life? In You're my here. mind, in my mind, essence precedes existence, and therefore, in my mind, essence succeeds existence. So when you are finished with this shell that you have, right. the energy that's you continues on. I 100% agree with that. There that is go. the best way to put it. That is how I've believed it my entire life. So, cool. Cheers to that. Yeah. Now, as far as, uh, you know, Dahmer again, he uh, was motivated by a variety of different things. And I think that there's consensus that really what he wanted most was to have acceptance with someone. And because of his other oddities, you know, that wasn't necessarily going to work for him. So he had to find a way to maintain a relationship. And whether that person was alive or not, maybe didn't matter to him so much. He wanted that intimacy with that body. He wanted that contact. Right. And he couldn't get that when they were alive because people thought he was weird. It made them uncomfortable, clearly. Well, he was. So when he came in here, we talked about this, he came in here for cocktails. Shakers is very busy. There's 30-odd people on staff, and they're almost all female. Mm. And um, Dahmer would not allow the female bartenders or servers to get his cocktail. He would get somebody to come out of the kitchen. More often than not, it's me. I'm a chef as well. And make him his gin and tonic. There wasn't great conversation taking place. You know, I'm, you'll read about me one day. I'm a serial killer. Just this odd guy with these eyes that would bore into you. And I will never forget those eyes. So I often uh, speak about like Jurassic Park where you, you see the T-Rex the first time, or you see Jaws, you see the, the shark. And they've got this very menacing yet dead looking eye that just bores into you. And that's what Dahmer had when he came here. Yeah. I couldn't even imagine sitting face to face with him. Do you remember those moments? Are they like stuck in your in I your never head. sat with him. Uh, all I did was I, I pulled out of the kitchen to make a gin and tonic for this guy. Right. But you'd see him walk in the place. And um, lunch here was always corporate America. So it was judges and attorneys and you know whatever else it was. And um, he certainly didn't fit in. He just, he dressed differently. He comported himself differently. He was just that odd guy. You walked in, here's that odd guy again. Here's that odd guy again. So he didn't speak to anyone? No. No, no, no. So that particular stool that's right there used to be at the front bar. And the front and the back bar both had the exact same stool. There's 24 of those things. But that one, for whatever reason they made it, is just a little bit taller. So when we changed the sets on the stools, we maintained that one. He would gravitate towards that one. My personal theory is that he wanted to be in a stool that was just a little bit higher than everybody else. And if he'd walk in, and that's taken at the front bar, he would just kind of stand off the side and wait till that's empty so he could sit in that one. Interesting. Kind of like... One way to put it. Odd. Psychology would be like he's up higher, so he kind of has more power or sure. more control over his environment. I don't know. It's, it's a very fascinating uh, little aspect of his visit here, I feel like. 
One of the reasons I think he even came here was because, of course, this was his hunt zone. So the gay bars were on either side of us, and we were that little you know, oasis in the center. But um, not just the judges and prosecutors and attorneys, all the people that were here were people that could put him away forever. And I think that, you know, that wasn't a secret at all, what my clientele was, or the federal agents or the cops that come here. So I think that he wanted to be in a place where he could be the, the baddest guy in the room, nobody knows who he is, and I think he kind of reveled in that. Yeah. That's my personal thought. Like, so. ha ha, you can't catch me. Right. You don't know what I'm doing. And he was Teflon because time and again, the system had him, right? So whether that was uh, the different judges, different prosecutors, even the social workers that had control of him, uh, his parole officer, they all just gave him a huge pass. They did. And so how do you think that made the city of Milwaukee feel when he was finally caught knowing his, his track record and that there were so many chances for him to actually be caught? Do you think that upset people? Well, it had to. I mean, clearly we were caught with our pants down and you know all the flaws are just right there in the open. And um, as far as the coppers go, that I, I know the cops personally that uh, turned uh, Conorak back to him. Um, it, we can say they're incompetent, let's do okay. that. So I don't think it was, it was racially motivated. I don't think it was sexually motivated. I think they were just incompetent. Um, they had other things to take care of that day, and this is a nuisance to them. Right. That you know people are, are literally getting beaten up, people are getting robbed, domestic violence, something else is taking place, and we gotta take care of this? Okay. And he manipulated so. people too. Like he was really good at speaking when he finally mm -hmm. did speak. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah, he was, not, he was not dumb. I mean, obviously he went to school at Ohio State. He's, he's a bright guy. Right? He could have done much more. And even when he was in the army, the reason he was a medical corpsman was because he was smarter than the average schmuck that is you know, stuck in the army. And uh, he really could have gone on to do other things, but he had this really dark side about him as well. Right. So when was the last time you saw him before he was actually arrested? Did he frequent this bar up until his arrest? Yeah, yeah. Um, so we saw much more of him. Uh, we, you know, he might have been here before 1991, but we started noticing this guy, particularly in January of 1991. And as the year went on, the frequency increased as well, just like his kill rate, by the way. Okay. That's so, my birthday year, by the way. Really? 91. Well, happy birthday. Thank you. November, too. November, too. Hmm, yeah. Scorpio. So, um, <laughs> mine was just a few weeks ago. So here we are. Uh, you know, he's here much more frequently in 1991. And it was probably the week before he was captured that he was in the house. That night, there's a flurry of activity. Cops are coming and going everywhere because we're a cop bar. And the next morning, it's seven o'clock in the morning or so, and I get a phone call from one of the federal agents that I have known for years and said, would you mind opening early? I don't mind at all. So I'm thinking, you know, we, we open up at noon, I could be there at 11 o'clock, and he's like, how about now? Mm. Sure. So I, I literally drove down, uh, bleary-eyed, and I'm standing behind the bar, and they've got 10 or 12 people here, and um, it was the uh, district attorney's office, and uh, whatever federal prosecutor was here, uh, U.S. attorney's office, the agents, obviously, several detectives were here, and then they had a couple, only two Milwaukee media people. So they wanted the story to go to the local people before everybody in the world converged on Milwaukee. And uh, as they're handing out the, the mug sheet, you know, here it is, here's his booking uh, paraphernalia, I'm behind the bar and I'm like, time out right there, I recognize this guy and here's my story about this. So before that point, I had no idea whatsoever. Um, I hadn't yet seen the morning papers about what had taken place the night before, so this was my eye-opener. Were you shocked when you saw it was him? Well, yes and no. I mean, um, it's not every day that you uh, 
have the, had the experience to serve a serial killer or a murderer. Uh, but, you know, he was so odd that I guess maybe I wasn't that surprised. I knew something was up with him, yeah. just not the magnitude. Yeah, I, I don't think I'd be too shocked. Just, uh, you could probably pick up on people's energy, right? Like, you kind of get a vibe for them when you're with them. And I feel like just serving him his drinks and how he would act, his mannerisms and stuff like that, I feel like I would think something was kind of wrong. So when I would see that, I, I just feel like in that moment, I'd be like, not super shocked, you know? but still probably very shocking to the city of Milwaukee of serial killer. And I'm sure everybody was like pretty on guard after. Absolutely, so it, it destroyed a lot of careers. There's a lot of collateral damage that went along with this. And I'm not just talking about the cops. They obviously, they deserve not to be in that capacity anymore. And um, what's odd about that is that they were suspended, then reinstated, and then they went on to other careers with other law enforcement agencies. Um, and one, in fact, still is the assistant chief at something just a bit north of us. So um, they did okay, but the city itself did very poorly. Any of the real estate around that area suffered tremendously. Everything down here suffered tremendously as well because this is where you would hunt for people. Um, those gay clubs are no longer in business with the exception of one. Which one is, is still That's open? the dance club that's on uh, 2nd and National Avenue. What's it called? Lacage. Okay. I didn't even know about that one. Yeah, so Lacage is still there. And it's a very popular dance club, so you don't have to be gay to be there. It's a dance club, right? Okay. Um, so next time you're in town, I can hook you up with Dave, who now owns that, yeah. and you can tour that. Absolutely. Cool. So, but everything else is gone. And there had to be, at that time, another 20-odd gay clubs. And that, of course, also impacted the lesbian clubs. And everything that was outside the normal purview, the city helped them to not be in business anymore. So... Did he actually hunt anybody here at Shakers? Um, not to my knowledge. And we wouldn't have the clientele that he was most interested in. Okay, so you just think he kind of came here because it was almost like a power trip for him? That's a big part of it. And we literally are halfway through his hunt zone. So you think about, you know, January, it's cold outside. And this, I think, is one of the attractions for him to pick people up because, you know, you got a kid that says to their parents, hey, you know, I'm, I'm gay. And they're like, get out of the house. You know, we don't want you here anymore. So here's this poor kid, 16, 17, whatever he is. And he needs shelter. He needs something. So he comes down where the gay clubs are. And in some he can't get in. The others were very lax about that. And some he can't get in. But here's this friendly guy who is not unattractive, right? Weird. Yeah. But could make it a point to be friendly when he wanted to be. Right. Let me get you some cocktails. I'll get you some booze. I got this. We'll get you some food. Yeah. Hey, come to my place. We'll take some pictures together. We'll hang right. out. It's all good. Okay, because your world has just been turned upside down, right? right? Your family doesn't want you. You're debased, right? You don't fit in. And here's their salvation. So I see him as that guy, but at the same point, I see him walking the streets in January going, I gotta just step inside for a minute and get warm myself, right? Right. So, and then at the same time, he knows what our client tells, he knows what goes on here, so it's like a little double header for him. Yeah. I have so many questions. I, I feel like um, there's a lot of controversy around still talking about it here in the city. Uh, we're staying at the Ambassador and we asked for room 507. We were uh, allowed to get it. They, they actually gave us the room. And then when we got there, they said, oh my God, no, you, ca you can't stay here. Well, you can't stay in 507, it's under maintenance and absolutely not like who told you you could stay there. Um, the lady, I think the manager was very adamant. She was like, there's no significance and no relevance to Jeffrey Dahmer ever staying here at the ambassador. No, not at all. Yeah, 
So I was shocked. Um, I ended up staying on the fifth floor in mm-hmm. 506 directly mm-hmm. across. Mm-hmm. I don't know if she felt bad, but she came back to me and was like, hey, I do have 506. But then we were talking to a man who was trying to get up there as well. And he was like, they told me the entire fifth floor is off limits and it's under maintenance. I'm like, well, I'm staying in 506, so I don't know. And we had some paranormal activity up there too with our devices and you can't explain what we experience. But I don't know, I just feel like they're trying to erase Jeffrey Dahmer. But in a way, when you do that, I feel like you're also erasing what happened to his victims. Absolutely. So this is a historical fact, whether you like it or not. This is an event that took place. And there, again, the collateral damage was significant. The chocolate company that he worked at, Ambrosia, which was there for 100 years before he worked there, uh, the city also facilitated their getting out of town. So they first annexed a part of Menominee Falls, which is a little bit west and north of here and they made it convenient for them, we'll pay for everything. And so Ambrosia Chocolate put a new plant that was there and then their sales had plummeted anyway because of Dahmer, so they were acquired by another firm and then another firm. So it was very disruptive that way. And all the lives of the people that lived at the Oxford apartment complex, well, they were moved out as well, right? right. So, and then the neighborhood changed tremendously that, from what it was. Um, and that scar continues onward. It doesn't just get erased because you want to ignore it. Just so you're talking about, you can't stick your head in the sand. These things took place. We wanted, um, probably 10 or 12 years ago, we proposed to city of Milwaukee that we should put up an obelisk or something with everyone's name as a memorial to the people that died. They wanted no part of that. We want to forget that. Where, where did you recommend they do that? By the Oxford Apartments was our first pick because they had taken down the building that Dahmer had lived in. Yeah. And then our second pick was right down here in 2nd Street, there are these little pocket parkways so between the entire mile stretch that he would hunt on, there are these little lots that did nothing else that the city owned and was doing nothing with that would have been a perfect place for that. Right. It's so interesting as we're talking about this because uh, we visited the Oxford Apartments mm-hmm. yesterday. I immediately got so emotional and I felt so nauseated mm-hmm. that I had to leave. I'm sitting here right now, I have chills, I have goosebumps all over my body and I just feel like I wanna cry because I just can't understand why their memory was just kind of tossed aside. They had this ability to honor their death and it was so traumatic, not just for the victims, but their families, the people that live there and I'm just like chills up and down my legs right now and it it pisses me off, it makes me so mad. Like I actually had to leave. I I thought I was gonna take out some of my equipment and you know do a little spirit session. We had to go, I was like, I can't even be here. Maybe if there was a memorial, I would have felt some sort of peace. But if I'm feeling this lack of peace, I can't even I can't even imagine what those families feel. And I'm like feeling that emotion and it's, I, I don't like it. There are some families that are still reeling from this. Yeah. And there are some, you, you deal obviously with this, however you deal with this, everybody's different, right? But I think that the vast majority of families did not want to have a memorial as well. And I think, of course, we're 30 years later, I think that if they had really petitioned because a number of philanthropists came forward and they acquired all the Dahmer property and they destroyed this, right? So people can't profiteer off this. But I honestly believe that if the families got together and said it is integral that we do this, it would have happened. But I think that many of them, for whatever reason, didn't care or just wanted to go away. I think a lot of them came from broken homes and had families that didn't really care about them. And Mm -hmm. they did focus on a couple of the victims in the Netflix series Mm -hmm. where they were very loved and they had a family that supported them. And 
there are a couple of them, quite a, more than quite a few, I feel like, that did come from that environment where they didn't have anybody. And that's kind of why they were in that very vulnerable position to go home with Dahmer, because they didn't really have a place to go home to where they felt accepted. So they're meeting this guy who's like, hey, like, I got this, like you said, and I have this, and we're going to go have a good time. And then he just took straight advantage of them. So maybe that's also a reason why the families don't really care, because, you know... Very Most involved. likely. I think you're right about that. They weren't involved. In I, I got to say something about the Netflix special, the series, oh, yes. the, the yes. 10 parts of this. Would love your insight on so, this. So, um, you know, I, I've got a few problems with this because they, I thought, really went out of the way to do some race baiting on that, especially the last couple of episodes. You changed some characters as well. So Glenda didn't live next door, by the way, and she's oh, okay. not the person that called the police. Oh. Uh, that was Nicole Childress, and we had done an interview with Nicole, I think, two or three years ago. And her life was completely upset. She was, uh, became a, um, owned a, a hair salon. And for whatever reason, there was a, a movement within that community to shut that down. She was shunned tremendously. And yet she's the one who is the good person that really called the police and found Conorak and everything else. So there's all sorts of machinations that took place on the backside that Netflix could have talked about. They didn't. Uh, one of the detectives, Murphy, is a crotchety old white guy like me, and they made him into a black man. There's a variety of things like that that they changed and shifted. 219 was a, another dance club. Uh, it was a gay dance club, but it wasn't a black dance club. And that's how they portrayed it there as well. Like oh. it's just some, some corner bar kind of thing or something. Yeah. And it certainly was not that at all. Uh, it had its own really dark vibe to it. All black walls, this shag carpeting kind of thing, the stench of cologne and desperation. Um, and they had cut out the second floor, so there's like a mezzanine kind of thing going on with that. And they had drag shows all the time. It was not a corner bar where a couple guys are having a couple of brewskis or something, and there's Dahmer, so that is, that's wrong. And they even paint the area as being a black area. It's not a black area. This was the artistic community. It was a, originally, this is the warehouse district of Milwaukee. So wow. when the brothels were shut down, and at one point Milwaukee had more brothels than anybody in the country, including New York and Chicago and St. Louis, so people came here from everywhere to participate in what we had going on. That was from 1885 until 1910. 1910, uh, the socialists come to power, and the first order of business is to shut down the brothels that conveniently were all around City Hall. So they didn't go out of business. They moved down here to the warehouse district. So if you walk outside, the joint next door, this ghostwriting said Hotel Frisco. So. The people that own that now, the, the uh, wife is still alive, she's like 97 or 8, and she's insistent it wasn't a brothel. It was a boarding house for young women whose uncles visited them all the time. Okay. Absolutely. Huh. Absolutely. But anyway, up and down the street, this is where the brothels all then migrated to. So at, as things evolve and take place, it's not then unusual for other things that are outside the norm to start to take place here whether it's the bathhouses or the gay bars or something else, right? So that's then what the activity was in the 80s and early 90s, up, up and down this strip and on National Avenue. They really made it seem like the projects. Right. That and, is and, like and it wasn't remotely. Really it was advertising firms, it was uh, small boutique artists that were there, it was galleries everywhere here. So Which, not remotely like they make it. It's so interesting because uh, Dahmer claimed that it wasn't racially motivated. And he was pretty—he was pretty firm in that. He said, "No, I, I just thought they were beautiful. Whoever he thought was beautiful, or he was attracted to, or whatever the case was, 
but he, I don't think, do you think he was racially? Oh, not, not remotely, because yeah. whether, whether you were white or Native American or Asian or black or Hispanic, he did them all. It right. didn't matter, right? right? But they had a certain body shape configuration. And uh, what also they didn't talk about on Netflix is that he lived at the Oxford about a block and a half away from a strip club called Ricky's. So there are stories about he, at late at night, right before closing time, he's got nobody else he's picked up. He's in there trying to pick up the dancers. The dancers are female. Oh. So at a certain point, he just wanted some attention. He wanted some intimacy, right? right. So you know, maybe today you'd call that a straight up buy. I'm not sure what you'd call it actually, but yeah. you know, a matter of convenience. He didn't really care at some right. point, but it certainly was not racially motivated. Yeah, I didn't think it was either, but I just think it's um, a little bizarre that they would uh, paint the picture that he was in the projects. And I always thought, okay, maybe that's all he could afford because he was taking all of his money and going to the bathhouses and paying for hotel rooms and stuff, you know? Because, I don't know, was his dad supporting him? Was his dad supporting him? I don't, I don't think so. I think he made decent money at Ambrosia, right. doing whatever he did there. And uh, he lived for free at grandmother's house a longest time anyway, right? Yeah. So I think he acquired money. Right. And um, yeah, I don't think he was, you know, wasn't a big spender, but he certainly wasn't without funds either. And uh, if you go to at that time, a lot of the gay bars, you drink incredibly cheap drinks. Yeah, so that was that was kind of the thing. So, again, um, rather than the other parts of society where you're paying whatever normal market price is, their prices always seem to me to be much less than whatever the norm was. So yeah. he could go in there and buy drinks with people all night long without spending a lot of money. And the bathhouses were cheap, right? Well, I didn't spend time at the bathhouses, like never. But um, well, if you, it's, it's, my, it's, it's my impression that, um, yeah, I don't think that it's, it's a big coin commitment for that either. Yeah, it didn't, it didn't seem like the best environment. It seemed kind of like a hostel style, right? Like you would just rent a room and like shared bathrooms. And so again, like you watch the Netflix thing and you think it's um, a little more styling perhaps because it's got that look to it, right? Right. But uh, again, not having been inside of them, but having been inside of each of the bars that were there, I would tell you that uh, most of these bars were not styling bars. So I can well imagine that whatever's going on upstairs, you got a room, you got a room, right? Right. So maybe there's a sauna over there. There used to be a place called um, The Ball Game, which is two blocks away from here, it's gone now. Uh, but downstairs, they had my beer delivery guys to tell me this because they had the beer there. They would have like jail cells set up downstairs. So that was their thing. You'd go there and then you little bondage thing would be taking place every night there. Hmm. So they each had their own little speciality, I guess we'll call it. Yeah. Just like the brothels here because Milwaukee had these phenomenal, very high-end luxe brothels where you had like the little Viennese quartet playing. It's all a marble foyer. But as you went down the block, three blocks later, you've now got these horse stalls where people are paying to have money with horses and dogs and whatever. So, you know, that whatever what? you're... Whatever your depravity is, you can find it anywhere. Oh my God. Well, we could go to Marseille right now and I can show you where this takes place as well, so. Oh, crap, I did not know that. You know everything about this city and I don't doubt that, but I'm just stunned that that even took place. Whew. Well, I'd be stunned that it's not taking place in New York or maybe not today, but that it hadn't oh, taken place. Oh, sure. So. Gosh, people are so freaking weird. They are, and you know, in many ways, you could talk about the decay of society and how it's kind of like Caligula-esque in so many ways. Talk about OnlyFans, and you know, that is that's not the cause of it, but that is maybe a side effect of it as well. Agreed. So anyway, yeah. So I don't know if you have any questions for me, but I have one more question. How do you think the city is affected today by Dahmer? Currently, 
before Netflix or after Netflix? Um, let's do after Netflix. Okay. Uh, well, obviously, there is a tremendous amount of uh, interest taking place uh, just for us. Last week, we had the Germans from the largest uh, European media company to interview me. Uh, we've got the French version of 60 Minutes is coming next week. I did interviews with the uh, London Times, the uh, London Sun, with the London whatever their largest social media company is. The biggest thing in Spain, out of Madrid, also came to talk to me. And then everything up and down the eastern seaboard is you know, coming to talk to me or Zoom me or whatever. So to that degree, Milwaukee's getting a much bigger name. Now, um, even going back before the Netflix piece, we have people going back to the last Netflix thing, which is called Dark Tourist. They picked us as one of the eight dark tourist locations in the country, and that was predicated upon, of course, our Cream City Cannibal Tour. But uh, we started having people that literally would come in from Saudi Arabia, from throughout India, from everywhere in the Pacific Rim, from Argentina. So there's a tremendous amount of power that goes along with those programs. So with this, we have any number of people that fly in that just come into Milwaukee. They fly in, they'll fly into, uh, normally into O'Hare, drive up here, spend a day, maybe hit some restaurants as well, spend a night, they're gone the next day. They have no other interest in Milwaukee, but they're learning about Milwaukee and they come here. So to that degree, I think the convention bureau is rather happy with us because we're helping that along. Right. We had gone from two tours, one each on Friday and Saturday for Dahmer to 16 in October in the weekend. And they're all filled out at 15 people each. Wow. And we're at the top of the pyramid for serial killer tours at $40 a person. You can do the numbers yourself. But they're not just here. They also go next door to Morel for a restaurant and they go other places as well. So it, it's good for the city to some degree. Right. I would imagine. So it's the places are probably getting business. Do you feel like um, the Netflix documentary upset people here? I think that a lot of people want to make it appear as if they're upset. I think just like when we began doing the Cream City Cannibal Tour, uh, one of the local stations, Fox Station, went to find the families. And as um, our first tour was a matinee, I think at three o'clock in the afternoon, uh, we've got 15 or 20 people walking on one side of the street and they've got about 20 people on the other side with signs against oh, the tour. Wow. So that was at three o'clock. Our next tour would have been at seven o'clock that night. And now there's maybe five or six people left. Right. So, and the next weekend, there's nobody. Yeah. So as long as the media was there, or they wanted this to be on Anderson Cooper. And um, I, I said no to that because their objective was to have this, you know, bring in the real rapidly unhappy people and you want to have this face-off kind of a thing. I'm not interested in any part of that. Why would I be? We're running a business. Right. And we have a real solid tour, so much so that federal agents who study serial killers come here from Quantico to take our tour. We work with different psych departments, criminal justice departments, because there are great stories here about things that went wrong. And we are not the New Orleans, you know, have another drink, have another drink. That's, that's not our thing. Um, so, it, you know, it kind of depends on what you're looking for. I think the city will be better at the end of the day because of this and because in some ways they're being forced to confront the past as well. I agree. And, and also not to repeat the same mistakes. Really. Hopefully. Hopefully, and, and just uh, we can't forget history. Like you said, you can't erase it. Well, it's not just the judicial system in Milwaukee that needs some work and tuning up. It, oh, it's absolutely. any major city where it's become a conveyor belt. There are so many people doing so many untoward things. How do you process them? So that's, that's a big part of that. But I, I'm really uh, curious if your interest in serial killers goes beyond Dahmer. 
Yeah. And if so, whom? Yeah, so um, Wayne Gacy mm -hmm. as well. Um, I haven't visited any of his locations, but I just remember when I was little watching shows about serial killers and thinking to myself, well, why are they the way they are? Is this environmental? Is this biological? And I feel like sometimes people would think it was weird that I was fascinated with serial killers, but it's not that I'm fascinated with them. I'm fascinated with their mind because I can't understand why they would do what they would do. And I try to really dive into the why. Why are they the way they are? So that's kind of what I would study. And that's why I have this fascination with them, I feel like. Um, I lived, at, so the Iceman, he lived in Jersey um, next door to somebody that I knew. He was mm -hmm. a serial killer. And I was so fascinated with that because she literally grew up next to him in his family. And he killed quite a few people. He was part of the mafia and uh, his wife never knew. And he was going out and he was killing people left and right. And that's in Jersey, like a, a town away from me. You know, they're everywhere. And why are there so many? Like, what, what is the reasoning? What is the reasoning why so many of them like gin and tonic? You know, like, what, it, what is that? How do you get these statistics? It's so weird to me, I don't know, fascinating. So I had teamed up with Laura Brand. Laura Brand is a forensic psychologist and uh, her preference, of course, is for uh, this type of crime. She spent five years in San Quentin on death row interviewing people that were about to be fried. So from that, she has all sorts, sorts of background material and information that the DA didn't care about. They, they got five cases, you know, death row, we're done there, right? So she's been able to find, uh, through her investigative work, another body farm with 12 more bodies in it. One of the telltale things about Bittaker and Norris, the toolbox killers, horrific, sadistic monsters. Right. They would pick young women up, toss them in their van, rape them, take their tools, and start to dissect them while they're alive. Ugly people. The calling card, if you will, is to put ice picks in their ears and mm -hmm. turn them around and they determined that apparently that one wasn't enough. They had to do both sides to actually kill people and then they would bury them with the ice picks. So using metal detectors, she's able to find the bodies as well. So, but yeah. in addition to that, look at Ramirez, anything else. You talk about Gacy, so I've done a lot of work with John Borowski. John Borowski wrote the first screenplay, if you will, on the serial killer culture. So that movie was filmed here at Shakers, or a big part of it, and then he had subsequent uh, series or programs that went along with that. His new thing is uh, Gacy. He's got a book that'll be out in March, and he and I have talked about a collaboration with that as well. I had him in for a book signing here, I think three weeks ago. Um, he would be a person that I could hook you up to talk about further for some other things, maybe yeah. to Zoom with that, because he's based in Chicago. But fascinating, fascinating backstories. The original Dahmer Confessions book is something that he had written as well. Oh, wow. So to that regard, the three portion, three episode portion on Netflix is legit. That's got actual people, actual stories. It's not sugar coated, it's not varnished, and it takes place here. The 10 part thing they did, they never even shot in Milwaukee. Not a single thing. If you look at it, I mean, it's, it's not LA necessarily, but it's California. And I think that that is disingenuous in so many ways too. I agree. So if you're doing something that is maybe not a documentary, but it is supposed to have this shroud of documentary and historical tones to it, do better research right? and don't varnish everything just because you want to have this racial orientation because that's the hip thing today. Right. There are people that actually respond to our videos on our channel, the Shakers Milwaukee channel, and like we talked to Nicole Childress and someone talks about her travails as being a black woman and other people say, well, she's not black, she's biracial, it's different. Hmm. Please, and you know, at what point is it, is it enough for you 
the trauma that takes place for her as a human being, as a person, as a woman is significant yeah. all by itself. Agreed. Do you have to split hairs about how, you know, what percentage she is or isn't? I and who are you to say that? that. It's, I can't it's crazy. Stand that so, anyway, that's that. Um, I would look forward to talking further both about the ghost things. We have yeah. so much to talk about with that. Oh, yeah. But um, even as we uh, continue further with John Borowski and Gacy in Chicago, maybe we can bring you back for that at some point. Oh, I would love to. Good. We can take him out of the site. So it'll be a happy day. And I know Ed Gein is not too far from here. Wisconsin again. him as well. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I also covered Richard Ramirez. Mm-hmm. I went to the Cecil Hotel and um, went into his room. Yep. And that was chill- That had to be, yeah. Chilling. I bet. So, very fascinated with this, but yes, I would love to talk more about that eventually. Oh, I should probably say this to you, is that, so obviously we've been doing these tours for a dozen or 13 years or something for Dahmer, and uh, by and large, it's almost all attractive women like you that come and take this. So, 23 to 40 years old, college educated, and they have a fascination with serial killers, a fascination with Dahmer, to the degree that you will overhear them saying, if he was alive, I'd like to date him, which just slays me. And I don't know if this is kind of the maternal instinct or something, I want to change somebody or fix them or something, or you're just nuts yourself. But that's our society. Disturbing, and I know that um, after the Netflix series, he, um, everybody, not everybody, but a lot of women were talking about that. I heard comments, and it just was so bizarre to me. I'm like, why would you even say that? Why would those words come out of your mouth? I don't really care how attractive somebody's face is. Right, like look at what he did to people and the lives he disrupted. Isn't that enough to not say that? I just feel like the disrespect is just alarming. Well, look at Charles Manson. Oh right? my God, people idolized him. And, and were engaged to him. Yeah. He might've gotten married in jail as well. And why? Right. Why? And I know mm-hmm. people were writing letters to him in mm-hmm. jail. I'm sure men were also writing letters to him in jail mm-hmm. as well, um, Jeffrey Dahmer. And women were obsessed and he was eating that up. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people want their, uh, their touch of fame, right? Yeah. They, they want, to, want to get as close as they possibly can. And for, in many ways, just the wrong reasons. Yeah, I agree. Rather than do something good for society, something good for people, something helpful, something that people remember for, for doing positive things, mm-hmm. you want to touch this. Odd. I always say it's very important what you do in this lifetime. You know, just do good and be good because that energy will come full circle and it goes beyond this lifetime. So our energy will exist elsewhere and your past life will really affect that. And that's just my belief. I, I agree with you. And I, you know, I'm a guest host in WLIP and I talk there almost every week about how the fact, in my mind at least, is that we are so toxic as a species, yep. we should not be going forth into the cosmos, right? Yeah. And uh, whatever we have here is just gonna go with us out there. And unfortunately, as we have now programmed all the AI, which now can program itself, it too is showing this little bent that is, you know, they don't want us, they don't need us. Yeah, so it'll be the scary. first thing gone, and then they're gonna destroy themselves as they take that virus out there. Yeah, humans so. are weird, and the fact that they even created that and are running with it is concerning. We should be scared. <laughs> we, we should be, we should be, but then you wouldn't leave the house, right? Right. Anyway, it's been a pleasure having you in today. I'm glad you came yes, to Milwaukee. I'm so glad nice. you came to Shakers, and look forward to seeing you another oh, I can't time. Wait. Thank We're you. We're gonna hang out again, and I'm sure you have more stories for me. I can't wait. Oh, I do. Cheers, folks! You that uh, took the time to watch this, I really appreciate this. And by all means, we look forward to your comments. ShakersMilwaukee at gmail.com works just fine for that. We'll uh, have a link for Chris as well and her programming. And um, be good to yourselves. Be good to people you care about, and uh, enjoy life the best you can. Cheers. Bye, guys. Thank <laughs> you.